0: Good evening. Biden winds up his Asia trip, meeting troops in South Korea, is North Korea planning more nuclear tests as Hyundai promises a $10 billion investment in the United States. A new regime in Australia is climate change on the agenda land uh, and uh, the former Defense Department Secretary Mark Esper writes a book about him and Donald Trump a new tell-all book on the former president. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, May 22, 2022. president joe biden wrapped up a three-day trip to south korea showcasing automaker hyundai's pledge to invest at least ten billion dollars in the u.s later he mingled with troops at a nearby military base biden emphasized he's on a global mission to strengthen the american economy by convincing foreign companies like hyundai to launch new operations in the united states
1: last year standing together with the ceos of major american manufacturers along with the CEO and the head of the United Auto Workers, I signed an executive order setting a goal of having 50% of all new vehicles sold by the year 2030 be electric, and it's an ambitious target, I know, but I believe we can meet it. But we're all committed to making it happen. Auto companies, American UAW, and the, and the federal government as well, because all understand the same basic thing. Electric vehicles are good for our climate goals, but they're also good for jobs, and they're good for business.
0: And that's the president. Afterwards, Biden visited Osan Air Base, where thousands of U.S. and South Korean service members monitor North Korea.
1: Tomorrow, the president and I will be visiting with the Korean and American troops. who are still serving side by side, even today, decades after our troops first fought valiantly together. To preserve the freedom of the republic of korea it's emblematic of our strength and our continuing strength and of the durability of our alliance and our readiness to take on
0: all threats together biden's first appearance of the day was alongside hyundai chairman usun chung to highlight the company's expanded investment in the united states that includes $5.5 billion for an electrical vehicle and battery factory in Georgia, which would definitely assist both Democratic candidates running for re-election to the U.S. Senate this year in Georgia. Chung says Hyundai has a commitment to bring investment to the United States.
2: Hyundai Motor Group has been a proud corporate citizen in America for close to 40 years, supporting more than 100,000 jobs across the country we have come very far and become very successful in a short period of time but we are also preparing for our future yesterday we announced an investment of 5.5 billion dollars in the state of georgia to establish our first dedicated ev and battery cell manufacturing plant Uh, this will be our first such a facility in the United States. I'm confident that this new plan in Georgia will help us uh, become a leader in the American automobile industry with regards to building high quality electric vehicles for our U.S. customers.
0: Sun Chung, he's the uh, basically the CEO of Hyundai in his speech. President Biden brushed aside questions about any possible provocation by North Korea during his visit.
1: We are prepared for anything North Korea does. We've had we've thought through how we respond to
0: whatever they do. And so I'm not concerned if that's what we suggesting. South Korean President Yoon signaled they're considering enlarged joint military exercises to counter recent missile tests by North Korea, including at least 16 missile launches so far in 2022 and its first ICBM test since 2017. There are also reports North Korea may resume its nuclear weapons testing. In a related story, North Korea's state media reports for the first time in nearly 10 days, the country's daily fever, and that's the use, fever cases, dropped below 200,000, reporting a positive trend, their words, after measures were taken to control the country's first acknowledged COVID-19 outbreak. North Korea declared a COVID emergency on May 12th. Concern has been fueled by a lack of vaccines, inadequate medical infrastructure and a potential food crisis in the country of 25 million. It's refused most outside help, kept its borders shut and allows no independent confirmation of official data. And in more health related news, if the COVID vaccine wasn't controversial enough, get ready for the next outbreak. President Biden said today, Monkeypox is something everybody should be concerned about, adding health officials are looking at the possible treatments and vaccines. He told reporters on the Tarmac in Seoul, we're working hard to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention expressed concern this week about an unusual outbreak of monkeypox in the United Kingdom. Seven confirmed And one probable case of monkeypox have been discovered in the UK since May, an unusually large number given that human monkeypox cases are uncommon and are especially rare outside West and Central Africa. Transmission is thought to occur mainly through virus-laced droplets, but direct contact with lesions or bodily fluids from an infected person or indirect contact via contaminated clothing or linens can also result in transmission. Although human monkeypox cases outside Africa are rare, in recent years, there's been a spate of exported cases to the United States, two alone in 2021, the UK, Israel, and Singapore. Monkeypox has symptoms similar to but milder than smallpox, which was declared eradicated in 1980. There are at least two vaccines with some protection against the disease. In Africa, monkeypox has been fatal in about one in 10 cases, with severe disease and death more likely among children and across the pacific or the indian ocean from africa australian voters have delivered a sharp rebuke to the center-right government and nine years of conservative rule in favor of the center-left opposition that promises stronger action on climate change australian labor party leader anthony albanese claimed victory on saturday
3: tonight the australian people have voted for change I am humbled by this victory and I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. My Labor team will work every day to bring Australians together and I will lead a government worthy of the people of Australia. A government as courageous and hard-working and caring As the Australian people are themselves.
0: And that's the new prime minister of the Australian Labour Party leader, the Australian Labour Party leader, Anthony Albanese. Early counting showed a strong swing towards Greens candidates and independents who demanded emission cuts far above the commitments made by the ruling Conservative coalition. Other than climate, this election focused on the character of the leaders. Incumbent Scott Morrison was deeply unpopular with voters and seemed to acknowledge as much when he admitted during the last week of the campaign he had been a bit of a bulldozer. He was referring to making hard decisions during the pandemic and severing a submarine deal with France, but it reflected claims about his leadership style as being more authoritarian than collaborative. He made his concession speech over the weekend
4: night for Liberals and Nationals around the country as nights like this always are. They are humbling but so is victory. Victory is also humbling and always should be. Tonight I've spoken to the Leader of the Opposition and the incoming Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and I've congratulated him on his election victory this evening. At a time like this when we look around the world and particular when we see those in the Ukraine fighting for their very freedom and liberty. I think on a night like tonight, we can reflect on the greatness of our democracy. And so on a night like tonight, it is proper to acknowledge the functioning of our democracy. I've always believed in Australians and their judgment, and I've always been prepared to accept their verdicts. And tonight, they have delivered their verdict, and I congratulate Anthony Albanese and the Labour Party, and I wish him and his government all the very best. And the outgoing
0: Australian Prime Minister and his Conservative coalition, which went to, down to defeat in the polls this weekend. The climate crisis was one of the defining issues of the election, as one of the few points of difference between the coalition and Labour, a key concern of voters, according to the polls. Meanwhile, even with big gains for Australia's Green parties, many Australians express their distaste for all the major parties, they call them the Majors. was some of the action at the protests in Melbourne, Australia. Among the signs that were displayed, anti-vaccination slogans. The outgoing conservative prime minister of Australia surely showed more grace in his concession than former U.S. President Trump. And that was on display today in an interview between former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, who spoke about his time serving in the Trump administration In an interview by National Defense Industrial Association chair, retired Major General Arnold Punaro, they were talking about Esper's new book, A Sacred Oath. Uh, You mentioned in the book that at one point, there
3: were some suggestions by some of the senior staff in the White House that we move 250,000 active duty military to the southern border to help protect the border and that perhaps some people in the Department of Homeland Security were also involved and the U.S. Northern Command which is one of the warfighting commands established mm-hmm. by Don Rumsfeld uh, after 9-11 whose whole mission is to protect the, the United States of America right. uh, the land space, the airspace, some of the, the sea space Northern Command actually started planning for that operation based on a suggestion by a staffer at the White House that had no authority to do so and you as Secretary of Defense and, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs didn't know about it. Tell me a little bit about that situation, that should worry us, that, that, that one of our warfighting commands would be acting on guidance and direction that didn't come from the Secretary of Defense.
5: I recount this story where I'm in the Oval Office and Stephen Miller uh, speaks up from behind me and says, you know, we need to send a quarter million troops to the border to deal with caravans coming up from, from uh, Central America. And uh, I think he's joking. I turn around. He presses again. And I say, I, I, don't, I don't have a quarter million troops to deal with that nonsense. You know, DHS can handle it. He had suggested that they were working on it, and I came back to the Pentagon and a day or so later pulled General Milley aside, and I told him, check on it. Let's make sure nothing's going on. And to our surprise, there was planning happening, and I assume it was kind of layers below the commander. And DOD likes to lean into things, and for all they knew, it was guidance coming from the White House. I don't know exactly how it flowed, but that was my assumption, and I shut it down immediately because I just thought it was completely foolhardy. It wasn't the right way to address mm-hmm. the problem. And look, we have a problem on the border. Uh, we, we need border security. We need to know who's coming across and and what they're bringing. But the solution wasn't a quarter million troops that I didn't have to begin with. It's beefing up DHS. It's giving DHS the the officers, the material, the resources that they, they need to do it. And so I kind of shut that down immediately and put the word out: if anybody in DoD or DHS or whoever has a problem, come see me, and I'll deal with it. Because at the end of the day, nobody was going anywhere unless I signed the deployment order and I knew I wasn't about to send a quarter million troops to the border. One thing people should understand, for example,
3: had those 250,000 active duty troops been sent to the border, they have no law enforcement authority under posse combatatus. Now the president can declare certain national emergencies and perhaps, but the National Guard can actually exercise law enforcement. So talk a little bit about some of the civil unrest situations that you had to deal with and how you
5: saw the role of the active military particularly when it comes to civil unrest, there is a role for the National Guard principally to support law enforcement. And that was the important thing that I tried to keep reinforcing with the president alongside Attorney General Barr that law enforcement should deal with civil unrest. And if they need support, then it's the role of the governors to make that determination. And if it's in the Capitol, then of course, the president through his chain of command can do that. After the walk we made through Lafayette Park, which was a mistake for me. And certainly I know General Milley feels the same way. That night, I directed that a memo be prepared for me. I signed it out mid-afternoon the next day that basically said, look, we have a role in providing support to civilian authorities, particularly in dealing with civil unrest, because, look, I believe in law and order, and I believe that Americans should have the right to exercise their First Amendment rights of assembly and protest and petition. Unfortunately, it was there were people in that crowd that were doing violent things that were denying people that. We had a right to safeguard Americans' rights to protest their government. But at the same time, we are an apolitical organization and need to stay away from being caught up in the politics of those moments and those days. Keep in mind, we had, in the wake of the tragic murder of George Floyd, hundreds of cities where civil unrest was happening. You have to give people that room to express themselves peacefully about what they see as injustice or whatever the case may be.
3: And you felt like, I think... You created the right balance, even though there were people that maybe wanted you to go a little bit further using active duty troops. A couple of of anecdotes in there about people making suggestions about things we we wouldn't do, which is shoot our fellow Americans and things like that. But did you feel like that in in the areas where you got pushed on, you were able to implement the correct balance between
5: law enforcement and, and the role of our military, particularly the National Guard? Yeah, I think in terms of outcomes, you, if you look at it, I think we got it right at the end of the day that law enforcement led. We would argue internally that it should be local law enforcement and then state and then federal. And then if you need the Guard, you could use the Guard. But in all these instances, to include Lafayette Park, the Guard performed
0: its mission of protecting federal buildings and federal activities. That is just an excerpt from an interview with Donald Trump's former Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, who's penned the new book, A Sacred Oath. He was speaking about the role of the National Guard in protests and the right of people to protest peacefully. The National Guard, you might remember, carried out the killing of four student protesters and wounding of nine others at Kent State, Ohio, and the killing of two at Jackson State University in Mississippi in May of 1970. Former Trump adviser Stephen Miller has denied Meanwhile, a sensational claim from the book that he wanted a slain ISIS leader's head dipped in pig's blood and put on display as a warning to other terrorists. The allegation was among several jaw-dropping claims made by Defense Secretary Mark Esper in his book, A Sacred Oath. The book recounts an incident in October 2019 when the national security team gathered in the White House's Situation Room to watch a video feed of the mission in which ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed. Miller wanted the special forces team who carried out the raid to secure al-Baghdadi's head, dip it in pig's blood and show it off as a deterrent to other ISIS members, according to Esper. The former defense secretary said he told Miller that it would constitute a war crime. Miller has denied the claim to The New York Times and called Esper a moron. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. A 32-year-old woman who was the youngest of the 10 black people killed at a Buffalo supermarket was remembered as a big-hearted and quick with a laugh. Roberta Drury grew up in the Syracuse area and moved to Buffalo a decade ago to help tend to her brother in his fight against leukemia she was shot to death last saturday on a trip to buy groceries at the tops friendly market targeted by the gunman final goodbyes for robbie as she was known was set to take place and did take place yesterday morning at the stately brick assumption church in syracuse not far from where she grew up in cicero the reverend darren jamie
6: we are deeply saddened um and you don't have to know somebody to know somebody. Um, You share in their grief. You share in their loss. There's a scripture that says we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And we come today to weep with you, uh, to share in the sorrow of the tragedy. Um, Our sister church in Buffalo, uh, we had a member there who also lost their life and I spoke to Uh, the victim's family just son yesterday and he said something so profound he said God is our strength and in a time like this we want to encourage you to know that God is your strength
7: Quietly
0: Darren Jamie speaking at the funeral for the youngest victim of the Buffalo Tops supermarket shooting. The issue was also discussed by the Reverend Dr. Alvin Jackson, who's the executive director of the Poor People's Campaign at a church in Memphis this morning.
6: Nineteen weeks into the year, and America has already seen 198 mass shootings. Nineteen weeks into the year, 198 mass shootings in this country. Most recently, the racially motivated shooting at the supermarket in Buffalo, New York. On airplanes, in school board meetings, on city councils in county commissions and state legislature, mob violence and insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, a mob emboldened by hate and lies, and racism, and a sick, narcissistic former president. But not simply the violent acts of a few, but the spiritual expression of the deadly poison of a seriously sick society. A society whose systems have too often benefited the few and left out the many. And sometimes, when you think about it, it just makes you want to holler. And in the words of Marvin Gaye's inner city blues, with the way they do my life, with bad breaks and setbacks and crime increasing and trigger-happy policing and panic is spreading, yeah, it makes me want to holler and throw up both my hands.
0: Dr. Alvin jackson he's the executive director of the poor people's campaign which is planning a march on washington for june 18th just a couple of weeks away and weighing in at a speech at a church in buffalo somebody you might remember the former governor of new york andrew cuomo i was speaking to a black woman from buffalo this week and she said to me
7: andrew what do i say to my children what do i say when they know that Black people were killed with white people. And what do I say so, so the children don't get angry or afraid or bitter? I had no good answer, to tell you the truth. And I thought about it all week. And this is what I think. We tell our children, there are evil, scared people in the world. They are threatened by people with a different color skin or a different religion or who come from a different place. But where the weak are fearful and they see differences, the strong see commonalities, the strong judge by content of character and not color of skin. The strong lock arms together and get stronger and Buffalo is a city of the strong. We tell our children, our enemies bring hate and we bring love. So tell your children, That I am here to tell you today, I love you. I love you. And I'm here to tell you today that people all across this great state, every religion, every creed, they love you. And we can take that love and it can help us heal and it can empower us to fight the fight that we need to fight to make this a moment of change so that the tops massacre is not just another on the list
0: but it is the last one on the list former governor andrew cuomo and finally uh, more news from the world of former political leaders Former mayor Bill de Blasio announced on Friday he would run for Congress in a newly created district in lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. De Blasio left office with low approval ratings in December after two terms and spent months openly mulling his future. But when a state court released a slate of proposed congressional districts this week, unexpectedly creating a new safely democratic seat in the heart of New York City, de Blasio saw his opening and seized it.
8: People are hurting, Uh, they need help, they need help fast, and they need leaders who can Actually, get them help now and know how to do it. I do know how to do it from years of serving the people of this city. And so today I'm declaring my candidacy for Congress in the 10th Congressional District of New York. And I want to tell you what people need is exactly the kinds of things that I focused on before. They need money back in their pocket. We did that. We reduced income inequality. We helped people by getting pre K and 3 K for all their children, taking a huge expense off their plates. Uh, I'm very proud of having led this city out of the worst of the COVID crisis. I'm ready right now to serve and address the issues that are so deep in communities in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I just wanted to come here, a place that I cherish and with you who've been such good friends to tell you this is uh, the next step and I want to serve the people of the community that is my home and that I love. The 10th district is Manhattan, south, basically south of 14th Street, river to river. And it's a big swath of Brooklyn. It's mainly Brooklyn, uh, starting uh, in downtown Brooklyn and going through my neighborhood, uh, Park Slope, and much of the area that I've represented since my days in the New York City Council starting 20 years ago.